Well, thank you everyone for joining me and for the opportunity to share with you. It's an honor and a pleasure, and I pray that the spirit would be with me um, as I um, share with you um, what I've had the opportunity to opportunity to equip, equip myself with as I've done my studies um, at UPenn, where I earned my PhD, and now to, as a professor uh, at Barnard College. And so I'm excited uh, for our time together and look forward to your questions. Um, we will have time to um, process this together, um, but I'll proceed with the lecture. Hopefully you've done some of the reading, so what I'll be going over will be um, amplifying that and even extending it a bit. Um, so if you haven't done the reading beforehand, perhaps you'll be motivated to do it afterward. So with that, let's launch in. I'm gonna share the screen. Okay, so the title of the talk today is The Backstory to Racism in America, the Socio-Historical Context of Today's Headlines. And so what we're trying to do is unpack, you know, all this information is coming at us. And, and in many ways, we think these um, things are new or certainly they seem to be um, um, uniquely um, hitting us. And so what I want us to think through is, is the, the ways that these social, these events that we're noticing now are embedded in uh, social processes that really have been at work in America since its founding. So how we'll spend our time together, we've just had the opening remarks. Um, I will in just a moment or two have you do a personal reflection for a few minutes, just kind of grounding you and where you are personally, perhaps what some of your stakes are. Um, so you can kind of bear that in mind as you go through and perhaps um, do a little bit of journaling afterward if you think uh, you feel so motivated. I think this also pairs well with the reflection activity that Jordan um, invited us to do after um, his sermon on Sunday where we would um, do the um, investigation of ourselves in terms of how we might have internalized some racist ideations um, as we've been socialized in the United States or wherever uh, we come from. Uh, I'll lecture for about 40 minutes, then we'll do what I'm calling table talk. So uh, Jordan will divide you into small groups and in, there, and in that space you'll be unpacking the lecture and the readings and hearing from each other. Um, and then we will conclude with the workshop-wide discussion um, where you can um, ask me questions, ask each other questions, perhaps think through some next steps for the church or perhaps, or, or at least uh, where we might want to do some more research and, and get to know more about the things that I've talked about. So here's your exercise, your personal reflection. So Jordan and uh, Jessica and the, the Renaissance team, I think, um, um, uh, requested that you bring some paper with you. So if you don't have it, hopefully you can grab some quickly. Um, but answer these two questions in just about you know, three to five minutes. What is your race? I put that in quotes, a racial status, because one of the things we'll talk about is the social construction of race, the idea that this is something invented, not bio biologically based. Yet I'm guessing all of you on this call know what your race is. Um, how do you know? Uh, what are the, the things that led you to come to understand that? And then under what circumstances did you, did you become aware of your race? Um, and then what do you um, think are your feelings? Uh, what are your feelings um, about these experiences? And what do you think motivates those feelings? So just take a few minutes to think that through for yourself, and then I'll come back and continue lecturing. Okay, uh, hopefully you were able to get a few things down and if not, uh, I invite you to continue some reflections later. And as I said, I think this pairs well with um, the exercise that Jordan has invited us to do over the next few weeks um, as part of uh, his uh, current sermon series. So uh, the lecture is gonna be divided into three parts. The first part that you're um, gonna be hearing is what I'm calling, what is race and what's at stake? So if you read the uh, Dorothy Roberts piece, Fatal Invention, how science, politics, and big business recreate race in the 21st century, there's the main arguments that you should have taken away. 
And they include, uh, first and foremost, that race is a political category disguised as a biological one. And what that means is that by political, we mean that it's something that's embedded in social processes that uh, what we might call, uh, and what we often in sociology call dominant institutions. So that's um, federal, state, and local government, um, the way that market institutions um, react to you, whether that's the mortgage industry or the, the corner store. Um, and it's a political category because there's a way in which it's reinforced by the laws um, in this country. Um, and it's not biological. And by that, I mean that there are no races whereby um, any human variation maps to a hierarchy or, um, or a better said, um, distinct um, sort of subspecies of homo sapiens sapien. So there's ancestral decline, which is why your doctor might ask you, does high blood pressure run in your family? Or there's um, clinal variation, meaning that as we moved out of Africa, all of us are African. Some of us just left our ancestors. Uh, some of our ancestors just left more recently than others, as I like to say. Um, but there's no, um, you know, way in which you can actually look at human variation through this idea of race. So they're they're constructed and they're contested. And so part of what we're unpacking in this lecture is why were they constructed? Um, who benefits? Um, um, who is burdened? Um, and, and, and therefore really getting a handle on why is this something that's gonna be fairly um, intractable, um, not over impossible to overcome, but something that we should be aware is very fundamentally embedded in, in how we understand um, our world. Um, so to understand race, so this is uh, this exercise I decided to do was you know, the rules um, that were invented, which is I'm guessing some of the things that you unearthed when you were thinking about your own race. Um, we imply these invented rules for assigning racial identity. So it's usually based on phenotype, um, especially when we're talking about the, the black-white color line. Um, so you hear you know, things like passing. But what is passing? That means that you are phenotypically presenting as white, even though you have some known black ancestry. Um, and so the idea is that it could be phenotype based on skin tone, eye shape, nose, hair texture. We can think about these things we can visibly see. But bear in mind, you know, because of the genetic variation um, uh, that, that we know is in, uh, in human, um, uh, within humanity, that most of the human variation is still in Africa. So for example, if, nine, if, if the entire human race were, were wiped out except for Africa, you would still have 99% of human variation because we spent most of our time evolving there, right? We left 200,000 years ago. So just, I'm meditating on this because I really want us to get this idea, which is often um, one of the first that's really key for us to understand, which is really key for us to, to move forward, which is that race is only a social construct. There is no biological basis for it. So that's, that's my reason for, for really meditating on this for a moment. White identity then, um, as we start to think about um, this, this process of, of racial formation, um, white identity becomes um, something whereby it, it gains economic and political value. So to be, to be white is to have access to the, um, political, uh, the political structure, to the economic resources, to the social status that allows you to have a quite high quality of life. So what's at stake is who bears the benefits and the burdens of society, um, especially as we move forward in different forms of capitalism um, that become uh, modern uh, industrialization and, and today's um, more advanced uh, forms of industrialization, um, even beyond what we tend to associate with um, the mechanization that happens um, in the 1800s uh, forward. So the racial boundary lines are contested. So this idea of the color line that I just brought up, there's there there as we've evolved as a country, and certainly if we look globally, uh, racial boundary lines are are shifting in terms of who's included, who's not included. So later on in the lecture, we'll get to the mass immigration portion of our country's history, where um, Italians and Irish people were not originally considered white. Um, they were in this liminal space between um, black people and white people. And there were a number of different mechanisms that allowed them to be adopted into whiteness, we might say. 
but they weren't originally part of, of, of what was considered um, the white mainstream. Um, Asian Americans um, and Native Americans um, are, are also uh, certainly um, part of the, the, the racial hierarchy here. It, and we'll talk about how Asian Americans often fit in um, as, as sort of this um, in-between category between whites and, uh, and blacks and, and triangulated. Um, Native Americans often are just not mentioned. We, we almost have a politics of erasure around them, but certainly um, indigenous people were here first. They're the people whose land or terra is being taken as this country is developed. So racialization, Roberts tells us, starts in the 15th century. Um, and importantly, we want to think about, you know, read the Bible. Slavery is mentioned in the Bible. Slavery is as old as humanity. And so we want to think about, well, what makes, what makes slavery in the modern sense of how uh, slavery will come to be um, part of our world, say, from the um, 1500s forward, late 1400s, 1500s forward? Like, what is distinct about this, this form of slavery? Why does it still echo with us um, today um, in all the ways that we see in such horrible fashion? Um, and one of the things that she, or two of the things that she points out is that um, race in this case becomes um, something that is immutable. Um, and so this, this process means that once you are deemed black and you're conflating the city of blackness and uh, being people of, of, of any known African ancestry, which is where we get this idea of the one drop rule, that it's immutable. Once I know you're black, I know that you're somehow less human because there's this, this, this in, inherent differentiation that is being created in order to justify the terms of the Enlightenment in Europe, this idea of the universal rights of man, and the fact that Europe is going to build its wealth on um, genocide, first of all, removing Native people from their land, and the free labor of enslaved Black people. So this idea is the African is inherently enslavable, and it's, it's, it denotes your permanent social values. So there's something that I know about you and your place in society, your relative ranking among humanity by virtue of knowing um, that you are of African descent. So as we think about the, the specific policies and processes that, um, that, that are manifest um, as, uh, that, that reflect this logic, um, one of the key moments, I'm a Virginian, I went to William Mary for undergrad, I grew up in Nova, so any DMV folk in the house, hello, hello. Um, but anyway, in, in, uh, in Virginia, um, uh, one of the, the, you know, the 13 original colonies, um, we want to think about um, a turning point uh, call, uh, that's uh, referred to as Bacon's Rebellion. That was a, a crossed, um, a, a um, interracial rebellion against the planter class that had to do with, um, with, with, with taxes and a number of other points of consternation. But the, the takeaway here is that it was interracial. So at the beginning, and so we talked about 1690, but in 1619, you had multiple labor arrangements. You had indentured service from Europe. You had enslaved Africans. Some enslaved people were actually able to buy their freedom. So there was a, there was a messiness, we might say. It wasn't quite as crisp this idea that black people would be inherently enslaved. Although those logics are floating out there, it hadn't really crystallized. But what you're seeing is we might kind of say this sort of, this, 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 this sort of um, specificity that's going to be with us really kind of taking shape in the late um, 17th century. And so Baker's Rebellion is this moment where the planters are like, oh no, if we don't get our, our, a handle on this, the, there are always going to be more people who have less, you know, that, that aren't elite than there are of us. So how do we manage the masses um, and yet have most of the spoils for ourselves. So one of the things that you start to see is this idea of the slave coast, this idea that black people are inherently, as I said earlier, inherently enslavable, predisposed to be subordinate to white folk. And so what is offered to what we might call working class whites, meaning whites that weren't especially well off materially, um, but you know, living a decent life, but also many of them quite poor, um, is you say, oh, you're, you may not be living um, the luxury that I'm living as, you know, the master of a so-called plantation, I call them forced labor camps, 
But what you do get is you get to police black people. So your original slave patrols, for example, the overseers are your working class rights. And we'll talk about how in many ways the slave patrols in the South um, are, are um, that the sort of uh, progenitors of them are, uh, uh, that there's a line between them and, and police forces um, in terms of how um, black people, um, social control is, 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 real, is realized. Um, so we also wanna think about um, the Negro and, the, and, and enslaved becoming so synonymous that even if a black person were to become free, their, their, life, their lives are still quite precarious. So we have free black populations throughout the country, including in the South, but especially in the North. So we think about people like Frederick Douglass, people who, um, what we call self-emancipate, right? Runaways, but they self-emancipate, um, as well as people who are born into freedom because they're the parents of people who, um, who had, who had self-emancipated. Um, and so, the, but you know, so they're, they're, they're tradesmen, they're businessmen, um, they're doctors, they're lawyers, but they're a small fraction at the, at the Civil War. They're about 10% of the population. And at any point, essentially, your word would never be believed over a white person's word, right? So that paper that granted you manumission, for example, could just be torn up in your face and you could be sold into slavery. So if you've seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, you have a sense of what I'm talking about. This idea that um, your, your existential being was always inherently a threat because of the institution of slavery. So this is really crystallized in 1857. So this is a little bit less, uh, you know, four years before the beginning of the Civil War. But, you know, certainly the, the logics of this have been manifest for uh, over, over 150 years or more at this point. But in Dred Scott, the decision that is perhaps uh, most famous, uh, Justice Taney says that black people have no rights, which the white man is bound to respect. So in this case, um, Dred Scott has said, you know, my so-called master brought me into free territory. He sued for his freedom. And the court said, at no point does it matter where the uh, your so-called master has taken you. You are um, forever a slave and you have no rights that the court will make legible that are distinct from the rights of your master. You are an appendage of the master. So we want to think about the complexity here, right? So we've talked about this anchoring of, of, of white being superior, although certainly variation in the white experience, black being um, the supposed, uh, well, both of them supposed, um, of, of black people on the, on, the supposed, on, the, on the bottom half of this continuum, but, but variation within both of these categories. The other element of variation we want to keep in mind is that, is that we have um, Asian Americans um, entering the U.S. in the 1800s. Many of them are pushed you know, from what, due to what the politics of what's going on in their own country. So, for instance, in China, you have um, the, the opium wars by virtue of what England is doing in China. Um, you have um, uh, some of the, the modernization going on in Japan. So we can think about how there are push factors in, in Asian countries. Pull factors here include that we have mining demands. We have the transcontinental railroad being built. Um, and um, a plantation economy that's developing in Hawaii, uh, where, which is where most of the Japanese people originally go, although many also come to California. And later, uh, we'll have uh, Korean, uh, Korean immigrants, we'll have uh, Indian immigrants. But the first two large groups are Japanese and, and Chinese. Um, but very quickly, this model minority that's doing a lot of this work in the West, and that in many ways is preferable um, to enslaved Africans, um, uh, because they're, they're willing to work uh, for lower wages um, and uh, by virtue of their, their um, either immigration and other kinds of social marginalization. Um, so they're, so they're, they're considered, you know, they're, pr they're privileged, as it were, as a, as a type of labor, but they very quickly become um, the yellow peril, right? So this model minority um, to yellow peril is a theme for Asian Americans. Um, and so at this point, uh, the yellow peril becomes clear after the Civil War, and um, the South and, and, and Reconstruction has ended in 1877, and the South says, oh, wait a second, we're going to effectively kind of get to do slavery 2.0. So we really don't need these Asian people, do we? So what your, your first Chinatowns, for example, are essentially 
um, Asian men, you know, who can now not bring any woman um, and who are also uh, socially uh, marginalized, you know, being forced to live in these Chinatowns. Um, so the Chinese uh, Immigration Act of 1882 makes that explicitly clear. The 1924 Oriental Exclusion Act um, excludes pretty much anybody from the so-called Orient, um, which is another way of, of, of talking about the, the foreigner or the other in a specific way that has to do with the Middle East and um, the East um, in terms of how Europeans are conceiving of them. The courts themselves vacillate in terms of Asian status as white, their degree of access to privileges um, and, and rights. Um, there's a case before the Supreme Court where this man who's Indian, he said, you know, if you're using this term Caucasian, which is the sort of pseudoscience term for white, I come from India, that, you know, you know, the, you know I, I, I live in the foot, you know, at the foot of the Caucasus Mountains. How could I not be considered Caucasian, therefore white, and therefore have access to all the spoils of whiteness in America? And the courts are like, oh, no, 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 by any common sense standard, you're not white, which means phenotype, right? So we see the courts reaching for logics that allow for them to maintain um, this color line and, and to maintain um, white domination. Um, for Latino and uh, Latinx Americans, Hispanic Americans, um, we can think about the Mexican-American War, which precedes the Civil War, declaring that they are free white persons. Um, so um, Hispanic Latino is an ethnicity, not a race. Um, and so usually, um, you know, the, you know there, there is this um, way in which they're, they're usually not considered black, but we have to think about Afro-Latinos, right? So things like skin tone, right? So if you're Afro-Puerto Rican, if you're Dominican, you're going to be racialized as white, even though um, you may or may not identify um, with, with a black or white um, uh, ra racial categorization as we can see in the United States. So your skin tone, your country of origin, your immigration status, your English language proficiency, your social class will still sort of mediate um, how your, your Latinx experience or Hispanic experience will be um, leg made legible in the United States and, and in many ways back to um, the social hierarchies that we have and thus the resource access that you have um, in, the, in, in downstream uh, aspects of your quality of life. The, the turning point for all of this, which we won't have time to get into in this um, lecture, although we can talk about it in the Q&A, is the 19, is 1965 immigration reform, which ends um, uh, the quota system that was established after mass immigration in the, um, in the 20th century. Um, and so now um, immigration is based on family reunification and your job skills, which is how we have this, um, in, uh, this in, uh, significant increase in Asian American, um, Latin American, and Caribbean folk coming um, in uh, the wake really of the civil rights movement and the opening up of our country to, to people of color uh, around the world. I just want us to zoom out for a second. I've given you a lot of words, but sometimes it's important to think about things spatially just to kind of remind ourselves of where we are in US history. Um, this is a map of the United States. And so I'm not saying, I'm sure why says expanding West words, not word, but I did borrow this from, from someone else. So um, just noting that I did note that little um, grammar issue there. But um, anyway, on the, on, the, on the East Coast, you can see um, that those are the 13 original colonies. I mentioned Virginia um, in the Mid-Atlantic. But I wanted to think about, I mentioned the, the annexation of Mexico. You can see that the West, um, you know, the um, taking of what would become California and Nevada, all of this is happening in the um, 19th century, which is also coterminous with the expansion of slavery. So there's always this tension between the expansion of, 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 of slave territory and free territory, right? So white immigrants who are coming to this country are, are not likely to be enslavers. They're likely to be immigrants who are looking for a parcel of land, right? They're looking to live out, um, a, 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 looking for a new life outside of Europe, outside of Asia, where they can have some ability to rise outside of the social structures in their own country. Um, but the planter class is constantly seeking to make money through this thing called slavery. And so it's going to, as we know, take a war to end it in, in, in constitutional amendments. But I want us to think about how our country is evolving and how it's evolving during this expansion of slavery and with this racial hierarchy in mind. So we can embed it 
in these social systems that are very fundamental to our founding. So really to hit home this point just through one more angle that I think is relevant to some of the things you may be hearing about today. Um, right now, this is the census year, the, cen the decennial census is every 10 years. So the first one was conducted in 1790, um, just after the founding of our country. And so importantly, just to, to, to reinforce, you know, the, the, my little violin about racist, races, races being socially constructed, um, we have never had the same racial categories um, in any uh, two censuses. From 1794, we've always changed the racial categories, right? Which is showing you, I mean, this is literally making apparent that the government is deciding how we're going to think about race. And that's going to reflect, of course, our cultural understanding at the time and what's at stake in terms of the power distribution. Um, so in 1980s, the first time that we really solidified this idea of Latino and Hispanic being an ethnicity, often they would just ask if you're white um, and then um, ask what you're, what, uh, you know, uh, whether you're from any particular country, right? But they hadn't really solidified this distinction between race and ethnicity, ethnicity being about your culture, your, your shared homeland, shared language, which itself is socially constructed, but importantly, ethnicity allows for people to live parallel to one another, where races are a hierarchy. And it's always conceived of as somebody being superior and somebody being inferior. Starting in 2000, um, you could actually check more than one box. And this is how we now at least officially recognize people as multiracial. But of course, people have been identifying as such long before the government said it was okay to do so. So that's part one. That's really kind of um, getting us grounded in this idea of what's at stake, what's the history, what's the lineage. Um, and now I want us to think about racism and capitalism growing up as conjoined twins. So this was my cue to do a, a Ben Carson joke, but I'm going to stay on my act right and, and save that one for maybe you know, the, the lobby if y'all want to hear it. But um, anyway, this idea of conjoined twists, racism and capitalism are growing up together. Um, and so this is, this is again, uh, a meditation in some, to some extent of what we've already talked about, which is um, what's at stake, right? What, what are the, what are the what are, whose interests are being served and at whose expense? So I had you all read um, a, a portion of the 1619 Project, which I highly recommend. So Nicole Hannah-Jones, I think, won a Pulitzer and several other awards um, for this project. Um, people stood in line to get this at the New York Times building. Um, I gave it out to my class for free because I just felt like this was such a monumental thing. So I highly, highly recommend it to do the whole thing. But I had you read um, Matt Desmond, Desmond's piece. He's a Princeton um, sociology professor. And what he's doing is really showing you how the brutality of capitalism um, and, um, and uh, it really uh, starts with... Um, the, the plantation, you call it the plantation. I, as I say, my intervention is to call it a forced labor camp, but that's a bit clear. I don't want to invoke images of the gone with the, of gone with the wind. Um, so I, I usually, uh, a bit more worried is say forced labor camp. So with that, what I want to think about is this idea of what he calls low road capitalism. So what he means by low road is there's a low road and there's a high, there's a high road and there's a low road. The low road meaning like, you know, you, you just, don't cut anybody any slack. It's clear that people are being used as a means to it. He's really meditating on this idea of capitalism has a range. It can be more or less harsh. It can be mediated through things like our social safety net, the, the you know, various public services we can provide. It can, it can restrain some of the behaviors of the, uh, the capitalist class, the people that own the means of production, to use our obnoxious term. But in many ways, the United States chooses not to do that. And we know that because we can look at other countries who are also democracies, who are also capitalists, but who don't have the levels of inequality that we have. So one of the, some of the things that he points to to, to, to nail this argument 
are that our worker wages are held low as businesses compete over price, not quality. So even today, you know, many of the new jobs that are created are not living wage jobs, they're part-time jobs, there are no benefits, but yet we love them as an indicator of economic growth. So we might ask more questions, you know, what kinds of jobs, what is the quality of life that is conferred by them? What is your experience working these jobs? Productivity increases through punishment, not incentives. Um, uh, uh, it's it's uh, high. Uh, you have a lot, high level of poverty and inequality, right? So there's this, this thin elite, and then increasingly you have a middle class. That's more of a 20th century phenomenon in the United States. After the United States invests in many ways in the middle class, specifically white people, um, uh, the latters are, are pretty much exclusively for them, which just grows what we now call the black-white wealth gap. This is one of the cumulative ways that we measure the um, discrimination um, people of color, but specifically black people, have experienced. Um, we also want to think about U.S. capitalism being harsh, as I said, compared to other countries that also have um, market system, private market systems for the distribution of, of resources um, and are also democracies. So the OECD countries are the Organization of Economic Cooperation um, and Development. So this is England or the United Kingdom, the Australia, Canada, who, who people we consider our peers, Finland, Sweden. Um, and so we noticed that we have a low unionization rate compared to them. We have fewer worker protections. As I said, we have a, a paltry social safety net. So that's everything from healthcare to parental leave benefits um, to um, you know, you know, who picks up your water and get, uh, picks up your trash and provides your water. Um, in the United States, our economic might really reflects our willingness to use violence to extract productivity from laborers, from laborers right? So originally enslaved people were literally whipped, induced to produce more. Um, and this, this logic of, of inducing labor through violence is something that is still with us. So slavery is in our DNA. Um, it's part of American capitalism. If we want to think about um, the, the commodity that really um, solidifies uh, the, the, the sort of value of slavery, enslaved people, um, it, it comes in the 1800s with, um, with cotton, or, you know, some of the earlier cash crops or things like tobacco. I mentioned Virginia. So Virginia and Maryland, for example, were um, big tobacco country. But um, as we move into the 1800s, um, you see that uh, the um, that the that that cotton is increasingly going to be this commodity that, in many ways, serves the same purpose as oil does today. So you know, often we look at the at oil trade as as sort of a benchmark of how our economy is doing. Cotton kind of served that same purpose, a sort of core commodity in the 1800s. And importantly, it requires a lot of land. If you don't take care of the land, it it, it leaches a lot of nutrients. And many planters were looking to make quick money. So they didn't really take care of the land. They didn't take care of the workers, right? The idea was to just make the money. This was, again, this theme of right, the short-term gain uh, without uh, thinking about the long-term consequences. Again, you know, emphasizing that as we're taking more land, we're removing um, indigenous people from land. Um, and so the cotton gin really is what spurs this growth in 1790. So there were some intimations at the Constitutional Convention um, in the late 1800s, um, uh, 1700s, excuse me, around manumission. So um, you know, but, but the cotton gin in 1790 really kind of shows that if we release enslaved Africans, we're, you know, we, meaning so very much the royal we, um, and slavers were going to lose out on a lot of money. The country would lose out um, on a lot of money um, in terms of who would bring the country at the time. And so um, we want to think about how um, this uh, led to greater demand for enslaved people. So no, no new enslaved Africans were at least legally imported after 1808, although we know there was smuggling. So you may have heard about the book Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston which shows that smuggling was going on even up until 1860. Um, and um, just a, a little aside, if you hear people say something like, you know, so-and-so sold me down the river, there was a big move, um, a shift of enslaved Africans from the upper south to the lower south as, um, 
as cotton is becoming king. Um, and so in many ways, this is when um, African-American families were broken up. Um, and I, I hesitate to say African-American at this point because they're not citizens, they're enslaved African people who would later get citizenship, become Americans, but in many ways, their status as Americans was still being contested. So I think um, we want to think about what we mean by American, who's American, as, as sort of this question, um, and not me saying that African-Americans you know, don't deserve that title and haven't worked for it, but just a sense of, again, this political category, what we mean by people's status at any given point in time. So slavery and industrialization, we don't want to let the North off the hook. You know, as Malcolm would say, there's not the South, there's just up South and down South. So let's not, you know, wax eloquent about the North being liberators. Uh, in many ways, they just didn't have that many Black people. And so we see that the Great Migration that a lot of the same logics will travel, uh, what will be manifest in the North as well as the South. Um, so the Lords of the Loom and the Lords of the Lash are in cooperation uh, with each other. Um, they are, um, these economies are integrated. So the factories are, that are processing the cotton, the, the insurance companies, um, uh, the, the financial instruments, all of these things in many ways are, you know, they're on Wall Street, they're in New Haven, you know, where the ships are being um, uh, repaired. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, you know they're, that are gonna then go back to Africa and be part of the triangle trade. So, so we wanna think about how everyone's in bed with this thing, even though it's gonna cause a war, um, it's, it's more complicated in terms of um, who really, believe from a moral perspective that black people were inherently um, equal, although it is a, the war is about slavery. It's also about preserving the union and, and, and the terms on which the union will go forward um, and not necessarily divesting of the idea that black people are inherently inferior um, to, to white people. But staying focused on this idea of slavery industrialization, we want to think about some of the inheritances that we have that often are associated, say, with the 1900s and people like Henry Ford and the assembly line, but many of these things actually come through and um, from the slave era. And I think the reason we don't talk about it is because we don't want to talk about it because it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, what, what, you know, your parents would tell you, you know, airing your dirty laundry. Um, so double entry bookkeeping, um, uh, the, the vertical reporting systems, right? This idea of the hierarchy on the plantation itself in terms of how it's managed. Um, the precise quantification of processes, right? So, you know, e each, each enslaved person was required to pick a certain amount of cotton each day or they were whipped or some other, or, or in some other way punished. Worker surveillance, so you could imagine the overseer, again, remember these, these, these interpositions for white people that are policing black people, they're surveilling black people, checking that the quota is met each day. Again, some of these same processes embedded now in, say, technology, right? Um, uh, electronic surveillance um, that we now use instead of, um, people's um, people directly watching you. So the slavery, the market and government practices um, and economic um, cycles are, uh, are, are, are things that we want to really think about as um, being um, fundamentally interconnected. Um, enslaved Africans are collateral for both private mortgages and state government bonds in the same way that many of us don't really know what's in our 401k today. And, you know, there are all these divestment movements and you look at your portfolio and you're like, oh, I didn't know I was funding that. Um, and so in many ways, this starts early, right? These bonds, these derivatives, but importantly, what we're saying in terms of even thinking about the reparations, in terms of thinking about the harm, in terms of thinking about the institutions that were in Lee, the state governments were saying, look, we have X, million, X hundred million dollars worth of enslaved people or billion dollars worth of enslaved people. So we're going to let bonds to build our infrastructure based on this so-called property, which is human, which are human beings. Um, and so these bonds are going to obscure it, but this is important for as we think about how slavery really is um, embedded in the, the very founding of this country. It also yields these, these booms and busts, which we're very familiar with, with things like the Great Recession, this culture of speculation, 
um, wealth acquisition without work. So we can think about the planter classes. You know, I don't know. I, mean, I don't want to be flippant, but you know, drinking mint juleps and, and doing various things that aren't exactly hard labor, but clearly benefiting from the sweat of other people's brow. And, um, you know, and so this wealth acquisition without work and this, this use of financial instruments to build wealth based on speculation. Um, is something that where we see that there are groups of people that are benefiting from other people's suffering um, and those people who are suffering getting very little of the yield um, as a result of, 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 of what they do. Um, uh, so growth at all costs, um, you know, with regard to the despoiling of our environment, we're seeing that with global warming as well as the cost to human beings and their well-being, um, the exploitation of the less powerful, this assumption of unending profits, right, this idea that it, the market could only go up even though history tells us that there's a bear in a bus market, um, and that there are ways that we can attenuate the extremes of them if we um, embed certain kinds of political economy, meaning certain restrictions on how market actors can behave. Um, and then also economic insecurity is, is normalized. This idea that government should not intervene, but so much that you should have to work um, in order to eat um, is embedded in this um, very early, uh, these very early social systems of the United States. So just to really distill these legacies, as I've said a lot, um, we we want to note that slavery negates uh, enslaved people's personhood and their autonomy. It depresses wages of, of all of all people. It becomes this metric for measuring freedom. So I would recommend to you people like um, uh, Angela Davis, who has a series of essays in the book called The Meaning of Freedom. Um, Lucy Gilmore, who's part of the prison abolition movement. You know, so all of them sort of meditate around like what does freedom mean and why is our notion of freedom so cramped. And they're like, it's great because we're comparing it to slavery. Like, we don't even know what human flourishing looks like because we're anchoring it so low. And, and you know, it's, it's anchored to this idea of servitude as opposed to the abundance that we might say that God, you know, has called us to. Um, it establishes the use of violence as a means to force labor productivity. So to part three, um, which is racism, capitalism, and the, cult, and the carceral state. And by the carceral state, we're talking about incarceration, the police, all of the, the social systems that feed into what we today call mass incarceration, this, um, uh, this form of social control based on uh, uh, people in prisons and in jails and otherwise involved in the carceral state. So anything from probation to um, any other type of surveillance by the state. So that's what I mean by the carceral state. I mean all of those institutions. So to zoom out, just to give us some perspective on how the U.S. sits, because I think sometimes we uh, you know, lose sight of, of just how extreme we are. Um, in the United States, if we're looking at um, international rates of uh, incarceration per 100,000 people, the United States far outstrips um, any other country. So one of the important things to keep in mind is that we are 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's incarcerated people. Um, same goes for um, use of resources, by the way. We are 5% of the population. We consume 5% of the Earth's resources. So just Again, connecting these dots around um, capitalism and our and our notions of of, of, of productivity and, and and the ways our environment and ways and the ways that people are treated in this process. So you can see that the next country is El Salvador, Rwanda, um, Russia, Brazil, Australia. Um, you know, so so many of these countries are not exactly what we call so-called peer countries based on say their economic, um, uh, you know, their their GDP or their um, influence in the world. But, um, you know, but certainly giving us a sense that we are far outstripping um, other countries in terms of incarcerating people. So one of the articles I had you read, um, which is an interview uh, with uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, um, uh, but what I'm going to focus on now is his book, um, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern America. 
um, one of the, the key points that he points that he brings up in the interview is this myth that's created that blackness means criminality, right? That if you're black, you, you, you are a criminal. So in a later slide, we'll talk about this compound term, the criminal black man that um, Michelle Alexander um, gives us in the new Jim Crow. But let's start with Muhammad and work our way toward um, Michelle Alexander, which will, which will help us to conclude. Um, the, 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 the first prison statistics that, are, uh, that we start to see come about at the national scale um, is, the, um, is connected to the 1890 census. Remember, I mentioned the census, right? So this is 100 years after the first census, 1890. And importantly, this is a turning point because at, at, in 1890, we're 25 years after the end of the Civil War. The Civil War ends in 1865. You know, Reconstruction ends in 1877. And so we now have a, a generation of, 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 of Africans. So now citizens, right? So the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, except if duly convicted of a crime. So that's your cue for how um, the uh, 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 mass incarceration will be enacted, right? Is that you convict the crimes and then from there, from there we can do with you uh, as we will, as it were. Um, but so I would recommend to you 13th by Ava DuVernay if you're interested in, in a meditation on this. That's a documentary I think that's currently available on Netflix. But anyway, so we have this first generation after uh, slavery. So the idea is, well, how are um, uh, people of African descent, now Americans, uh, in the sense that they are now legible by the state as citizens, how are they doing um, with, with their freedom? You know, what is, what is life like um, outside of slavery? Uh, and so it becomes this basis of national discussion around crime, um, importantly, crime among all racial groups in cities is quite high, um, and blackness is not initially the sole signifier. Um, but what they are finding as they're culling these statistics um, that are coming in from state and local governments is that blacks are 13% of the population, which is still roughly the number of African Americans in this country, but they're 30% of those convicted of crime. Um, but this is highly misleading. So in the South, Laws are, um, are, are, are enacted to punish blacks for expressing their freedoms. Remember I told you that the hint would be that incarceration will not happen or sort of slavery's legacy, it's, it's afterlife, as Brian Stevenson of the Equal and Justice Initiative would say, slavery's afterlife is going to be um, through this, this, this whole call, we just need to convict you of a crime. So in the South, you could be evicted, arrested for vagrancy because you didn't work for Massa so-and-so on, I don't know, whatever day, we're going to arrest you for vagrancy and if you can't pay the fine for being a vagrant, oh, then we can lease you out to somebody who's building the road. And they'll let us know when you paid off your fine and paid your room and board. And so you're, you're, you're seeing this convict leasing being in many ways the first instantiation of mass incarceration, right? So these same Southern states are now sending laws, sending statistics saying, oh yes, we just have a, a crime problem among these African-Americans. And so we can see that this is, you know, as you're, if anyone's taken stats, your, your professor was, has likely told you, garbage in, garbage out. So this is the garbage coming out saying that black people are supposedly more criminally inclined when really they're expressing their freedom um, in most cases. In the North, we're seeing laws enforced on black disproportionately. Um, so again, everyone's committing crimes, but the enforcement is on black people. That's the theme. Uh, we'll also see that vice is allowed in black communities, right? So during the prohibition period, the early 1900s, where were the speakeasies? Oh, the speakeasies were in the black neighborhood. And who got arrested if someone's going to get busted? Oh, it was the black people that got arrested. And if the, and if the mafia was fighting, um, you know, who was going, where, where was the shootout going to occur? Where was the, where was the liquor going to be stored, right? So there are ways in which our black communities were the places where these kinds of behaviors were tolerated, even though they were being patronized by all racial groups. And so it, it really erodes through one more mechanism, the capacity of black communities to thrive. So not only are they being, you know, excluded from capital accumulation, 
through things like, you know, excluding them from the mainstream mortgage industry and by, um, you know, forcing them, for example, to build next to factories because, you know, that's the only place where they could, they could find land or, or forcibly segregating them into these communities through various Jim Crow laws in Virginia and through vigilante mobs that we know would have cost Black people. Um, so we can think about Tulsa in 1921, which has kind of hit the public imagination recently. Um, so this is Black Wall Street, right? Very, very accomplished Black folk. And they just burned down the Greenwood neighborhood. People run for their lives. People are never compensated. But this is not unique to Tulsa. This is something that happens again and again. Bloody summer, 36, 36 mobs, uh, 36 uh, cities burned due to white, uh, white mobs, white terrorism. So the first terrorists in this country were certainly um, uh, white folk who were terrorizing black people. Never, never let people tell you that the first terrorists were not domestic in this country. Um, 4,000 African-Americans are lynched, again, the Equal Justice Initiative in uh, Alabama, um, capturing that um, through a memorial um, that um, Jeff Bryan Stevenson has erected in, um, in Montgomery. So when we think about this, this turning point, we want to also think about how immigrants, I told you, not quite white, right? So Italians, Irish, East, Eastern and Southern Europeans, and we're coming to this country of mass immigration. New York City is 30% immigrant. Like we, we think about it now and, and we feel like we have a lot of immigrants, but there, this was the, the first wave of, of mass immigration in the, the modern era. And so what we want to notice is that there's a distinction between how, um, and I'm noticing my time is getting a little bit low, so I'm going to rush through this. Um, we want to notice that, um, that, that, that immigrants are given on-ramps to becoming white um, through resources, through philanthropists, like settlement houses that uh, people like Jane Addams stand up. But African-Americans who are coming to the North through the Great Migration um, are not getting these same benefits. So half of the Black population leaves the South. They're forcibly segregated, robbed of opportunities in, in the same way, or not given the same opportunities as whites are given. Um, everything from the Social Security Act of 1935 to the How the GI Bill is later um, uh, 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 implemented after World War II. Um, but let me move forward because I'm noticing I'm, I'm running a bit out of time here. Um, I want to notice that there was resistance um, from, uh, from uh, African-Americans from the NAACP to um, our historically black college and, uh, colleges and universities, which are the places where African-Americans can get educated because they're excluded from white institutions. Um, so they are, in many ways, the people who are, are holding up the light. They're speaking truth to power and saying, no, these statistics are a lie. And we know why black people are not achieving at the same level of white It's because you're not giving them the same opportunities. There's a sedimentation of inequality that is reinforcing through multiple mechanisms their status in society. So this racial uplift model is one that um, is uh, seeking to um, demonstrate black people's fitness for their, their rights, right? Why should they have to prove anything? They're citizens, but yet black people are continuing to prove again and again that they are fit. Um, but we want to also keep an eye out for this respectability politics model, which sometimes can start to sound like victim blaming, whereby people are asking for black people to sort of prove their worthiness before they're invested, as opposed to saying the, the reason why they have all of these problems um, uh, concentrated in their communities because they have been deprived of resources. So um, this is my last slide because I want us to have some time in the groups. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, so we just won't get into it. Um, but the idea of the conflation of crime and blackness um, is, becomes part of our logic. Our, our courts are now going to reinforce this idea um, as we move after the, toward the, uh, the, the, after you have the civil rights movement and you have the, the breakthroughs of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, et cetera. Um, the Supreme Court is going to increasingly walk away from a full-throated enforcement of those laws. So, for example, disparate impact, the fact that African-Americans have a different experience than whites is not enough to, to um, 
force uh, state intervention. You have to prove that you specifically were discriminated against. We know the war on drugs um, creates um, this warrant for black people to be policed in ways that white people are not policed and really ways, in many ways fuels the mass immigration um, that we saw in that chart that I started with. Um, and then uh, we want to think about the fact that there are these unique, unique aspects of contemporary incarceration um, that are uh, going to really lead to a comprehensive system of social control um, that uniquely affects Black people. Um, they're marginalized across social domains, right? So the incarceration system is one of the social domains that they're excluded and extracted from. They have fewer well-paying jobs. They have fewer underperforming schools. We think here about the school-to-prison pipeline. They're not educated and they're set up in many ways to be on um, the social margins and more likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system. Although we know no one's excluded from being policed, um, we know just being black um, is enough for it to be stopped. Um, also low quality public goods and services in black communities. And so this reinforces black people's subordination to whites through um, non-explicitly racial legal, uh, but, but yet legal means, right? So never explicitly saying it's because you're black, but all of these processes are reinforcing black people's social status. So this colorblind logic is that if, if we don't say it's about race and it must not be about race, as opposed to saying, well, what is the socio-historical context of how these laws are being enacted? Who are they affecting? Um, who is most able to participate in markets? Um, how are people using these logics of racial difference to justify treating people differently? But important, the reason that's done is because certain people are benefiting from capitalist regimes that, that um, are based in uh, racial schemes. And so with the sedimentation of inequality is a really important concept, I think, to carry with us to, to think about this idea of the reinforcement through multiple angles as the birdcage of, uh, for black, of black people support, subordination and that black people subordination is a complement to black to white people's um, domination, that you don't get white domination unless you're extracting from and excluding from black people. Um, and so that's what's at stake. That's why race is important. Um, so I will stop there because I want us to have some time for table talk. Um, so we were going to, there's a lot of people coming in right now, back from their breakout rooms, and we don't have a ton of time, and I figured it might actually be the best use of our time if we asked her some questions um, to wrap up the rest of our time, and I actually hear my wife still talking in her group. That <laughs> still have a well, I mean, I don't want to abuse any much time, I don't know what your time looks like, Jordan, but if, since I went over a little bit, I'm happy to stay for a few minutes over nine if people want to ask me a few questions. I don't I don't know what you just have going on, so I don't want to um, take your time. But I mean, I'm happy to stay on for a little bit longer since I'm a co-host, if I can do that, if we want to. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll happily make you the host. I'm, I'm not ready to get off either. I just want to respect everybody's time and your time. Yeah, sure. so I think maybe we'll just tell everybody at nine, it ends at nine. You know, I was no disrespect at all if you need to get off, but for those who want to stay on since we, I think may have more to, uh, to ask. Mm -hmm. and so yes, this conversation was recorded and we will be uh, sharing the recording. Um, yeah, so uh, Dr. Sims, do, would, you, would you prefer to, to take some questions now? Would you prefer to, uh, to kick it back um, to the Sure, we can go with questions. If people want to write into the chat a comment or a question, you know, sort of how they want to use the discussion period. Sometimes they say, are there comments, questions, or epiphanies? I heard people talking about Bacon's Rebellion, and people talking about for the first time hearing that race is socially constructed. So, you know, I think there are a number of things that maybe were aha moments for people or maybe things they want to follow up on. So I'm happy to, to go down a road that they didn't get a chance to go down, to answer clarification questions, to do whatever makes sense for how you all want to spend the time to continue to unpack this. Yeah, the one question I heard in the one group that I, I peeked in was, what what does change actually look like? I mean, what what needs to happen? I mean, this, this big behemoth that you presented to us, 
uh, this nexus of race and, and class and capitalism, what, what needs to happen for its dismantling as the term that has gone all over Twitter? Right, right. Like de defund the police or, you know, whatever the, the new <laughs> yeah. term is, which of course, you know, I think if you unpack it, it usually means reallocation, um, but it's more than reallocation is really a reimagining kind of that third question of what society looks like when you're going to manage conflict without the kinds of um, force that we're going, that we have been using. But even that I think misses the issue, which is when I, why I took it all the way back to slavery, which is, um, how we first started with the fact that everybody is fully human. Is every, are we in agreement, for real, for real, not just rhetoric, but for real, for real, in agreement that everybody's human and should have access to certain basic things. Remember I told you, I mentioned that we don't even have certain basic things as part of our guarantee to just being a resident or even a citizen of this country, right? This idea that you need to work by this one of your brow to even eat, right? These are some basic notions that come through from our founding, um, as opposed to because you're human, we're going to make sure that everybody has access to, to certain things. And so I think um, part of what we're still grappling with are these issues around rationing. But the fact that we're rationing is also embedded in who's deserving and who's undeserving. So these logics of who's human are also connected to these logics of who's deserving. So, I mean, I think real change um, you know, is going to be multifaceted, multi-pronged um, over, um, over time. But I want us to first map out what are the dominant institutions that shape what we call our life chances. So, in the groups that I was in, people talked about schools, but it's not just schools. Once you get out of schools, you need to have a, you need to have a job. You need to have a living wage job. You want to live in a neighborhood and not have it next to a, a landfill. Um, that means that we've got to address how we use our waste. That means we've got to address things like global warming. So there, there's so many avenues. I think Jordan, your prompt to us in the sermon was really great, which think about well, what are our um, burdens? What are our interactions? You know, what are our talents? And then embedding ourselves in institutions that are doing this visioning together. And so it's going to be this sort of, here's the race that I'm running, you know, let's run the race that God has put before me, looking under Jesus, the author finisher of my faith. What is the race that God has given me? How can I find like-minded people? And how can we work together to, to, to sit at the feet of people like Ansel Davis, like Ruthie Gilmore, um, like, um, you know, some of our elders, like, you know, for Disability Democracy, Ella Baker, who really is part of the grassroots movement in the South that, you know, is um, creating SNCC and the, the movements that give us the opportunity to even have this conversation now. So what is it going to look like in the 21st century? So I think if we, if we're not going to get overwhelmed, it means, okay, what is, thing, what is the big picture we're striving for? Even as we can't quite manage the detail, what are we, what are we broadly speaking saying we're reaching for? And then how do we, you know, as your, as your advisor in school might have told you, how do you look at your deadline and then work backwards, right? How do we work backwards? What are the things we need to infill in order to honor everyone's humanity? What are humans' basic needs? What are our distribution processes? What kinds of political regimes do we need, right? So Stacey Abrams is saying, look, you know, it, how are we, you know, uh, you know, taking people off the rolls um, in ways that clearly fly in the face of the Constitution, but no one's saying boo about it, right? So that's, that's her lane, right? So that's for democracy, and that's how she's going to contribute, right? And there, there are people that are in the environmental movement that are looking at the intersection between climate change in environmental justice, the ways in which black people, brown people, um, so you know, Latinx people, every, you know, the people picking our lettuce, as well as the, the black folk in, in the places like the Bronx, who experience planned shrinkage and who to this day um, have the highest asthma rates and the highest um, experience incidence of, experience the highest incidence of pollution by virtue of, of, the, of the distribution centers in New York City and the highway routing, you know, so, so all of these things are interconnected is what I would say. And so, Think about the big picture and then find your lane within that, but always think about how your little lane is fitting into this broader ideation around God's abundance, 
we're all Imago Dei, how are we going to connect those dots between that recognition and the kinds of social systems that we're creating? That was good. Think about the bigger picture, find your lane, but don't forget about how your lane plays into the bigger picture, into the larger vision, What that's what it was. Right, and get embedded in institutions that are really doing that work to bring people together. So people like me who've had the opportunity to sit, to sit and read, we're great, but you need to talk to people in the community, right? So I would never go and start talking about environmental justice in the Bronx and not be embedded with um, civic organizations there that have been doing this work for decades, right? What, what the heck do I know because I've done something? I mean, I'm not saying I don't something to share, but I come in with humility. So I think, you know, we can all hold both the confidence and the conviction of, of what of what we bring to the table, but also recognize that we're always need to work in, in concert, which is what makes the church to me so promising that we, you know, on this call, we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have geneticists, we have professors. And I think, you know, I don't know if you guys, I grew up in the, in the, in the eighties or the nineties. So like, I don't remember Captain Planet and they'd always say by our powers combined, I am Captain Planet. So I'm like, by our powers combined, we can envision a new world, right? Where we're not thinking about controlling people um, and rationing basic needs. You know, like, what is this world? <laughs> this is not the world that God, right? On, on earth as it is in heaven. This ain't heaven, y'all. We can do better. You know, but the question is, do we really want to do better? Are you willing to put the skin in the game? Are you willing to sacrifice some of the privileges um, that you have and some of the ways in which we're complicit? So I start with myself with a black woman. I'm like, okay, so I have class and race disprivilege, but I make my, my check comes from Columbia. So in many ways, I eat the king's rations. So if I'm up at Columbia eating the king's rations, but acting like I... I'm not a black woman, like I'm not a Jew, if we're losing the metaphor of sort of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's table, then I got to hold myself accountable. At the same time, it's true. I'm not a white man with full professorship at Barnard in Columbia, right, who has a very different experience than I do. So we have to be able to hold these things with agility. Think about your context, your environment, work in concert with others, with both that confidence, that humility, that willingness to learn, and that willingness to dig in to what's going to be a long haul process. That's phenomenal. Keep the questions coming in, y'all. And again, um, if you have to step off at nine, we certainly understand your time. And uh, Dr. Sims, I think they would keep you on until midnight. So you, you should have a hard, <laughs> you, you need a hard stop minutes, time. I guess. Let's yeah. say 9.15 and then that'll, and uh, are you looking at the chat for questions? I've seen a lot come in there, 52 comments at this point. Um, You've answered a lot. You've answered a good deal of them in terms just in your past answer. A lot of us want to know how do we change, how do we bring change? And I think you've done a really great job at explaining kind of the ways that that happens through just kind of this multifaceted approach. Um, I see yeah. one at the end about the civil rights movement and um, the church. Um, what does leadership look like? And, um, and is it necessary in the in this age where so many people have platforms when the country is polarized? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's a great question. That's something that I think about as a Christian, um, and this idea in the in the in the idea of the you know my walk as um, as a Christian, regardless of how I would be um, in my, my walk period. But my walk, I believe, as I understand God uh, laying it on my heart, that you know that my walk is to be equipped to understand these things, to speak to multiple audiences, to publish about it, to speak about it, to work with others. So that's that's my lane, um, and so. And so to me, one of the things that I have on my heart as a Christian is that this movement, I think, needs um, uh, the, the spiritual grounding. I think that the, that the, the, the civil rights movement, it doesn't mean that everybody there was a Christian or that everyone, um, 
you know, you know, believe the same things, even if they call themselves Christian. But I do think that, that the church um, has, it has been and continues to be still an anchoring institution where we can litigate amongst ourselves a vision. But I think the church has to do that, do that work of being agile around being inclusive of, of people, um, you know, that may not subscribe to every last tenet of your belief system, but, but really doing it, you know, our level best to think about um, this call to, to witness and to bring in the stranger, um, to, to love neighbor as self, right? When the Samaritan, when, you know, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, like, who is my neighbor? In many ways, it's to say everybody's my neighbor, but some of my neighbors are more proximate than others. So how can I work um, locally to, 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 to be love and light to those people, even as, as I said, I see myself as part of this broader global system. So I do think the church um, provides the vision um, of what um, a flourishing humanity can be um, and has accountability around, as you said uh, on Sunday, Jordan, this idea of justice, not just being not punitive, but justice being restorative. There's justice, um, the other way I thought about your sermon, Jordan, was this, uh, this idea of shalom. And one of the reasons, reasons I heard Shalom mention was where, where nothing is broken and nothing is missing. So where nothing is broken means that we've got to heal. That means, that means reparations. That means acknowledge. That means America's got to say, I'm sorry. Slavery was a bad thing. We've never said that. We have an African-American history and culture museum. But there is no monument. There is no official apology. When the Germans, um, you know, uh, uh, admitted that they were wrong in the Holocaust, they gave money to Israel. They returned things to the Jews, right? There have been multiple Holocausts, plural, of people of African descent um, in this country. And if we're, taking, if we're taking numbers, the most efficient, most ruthless killer um, in the 20th century was Pol Pot. Most people don't know who Pol Pot is. Um, Pol, Pot, Pol Pot was in Cambodia. Right? So we, you know, there's a lot to go around in terms of our, our global healing, but just acting at home, we want to think about shalom, peace, right? You know, the, one of the chants of the movement is no justice, no peace. Well, what is peace? What is an affirmative piece, right? An affirmative piece where is where nothing is broken and nothing is missing. So, right, we have room where everyone's flourishing in abundance. Um, all the talents and gifts that God has given us. We're not rationing basic needs based on some deserve. No, everyone's a mago die, and there's some vision of how we're going to incorporate all people. It doesn't mean that there's not social differentiation, right? There's the parable of the talents. The spirit gives as the spirit gives. The question is, does society have room for everyone to contribute? Um, and to live with a basic level of dignity. Um, and um, that's, you know, whether you believe um, in Jesus or not, although I think those of us who are the followers of Jesus have a particular calling to do this work um, and should be discerning actively from God um, how within the realm of the, the uh, you know, the, 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 the dispensation of time and the boundaries God has laid out for us, um, how we're going to, to bear that out. I'm looking here, Chantel is saying shalom and affirmative peace are similar and the idea that everything is as it ought to be flourishing just things. Yep. Agree. So there's some other questions. How are we to understand God's sovereignty? A lot of what's happening just means the reason God is in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think God's sovereignty is here, um, you know, always here. Uh, I also say that, you know, it's kind of people ask, you know, about revelation, like when, when you're in time, I'm like, you know, people have been trying to predict in time since forever. I, I, what, I, what I see laid out in the Bible, whether you're reading, you know, the Old Testament or the New Testament, um, you know, you're, you're seeing this, this, um, this, this understanding of, 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 of inclusion, of stranger, the idea, you know, the, the, the Jewish identity, the Israeli identity of coming out of the Exodus story, 
of God being, you know, uh, being a liberator, certainly the New Testament idea of, of abundance and, and, and flourishing that God, you know, came to give life and to give life abundantly, um, the ways that um, we're called to be servant leaders, the ways that we're called to be self-sacrificial, you know, if you look at the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, and it's, it's all of these subversions of power dynamics. And so I think God um, is calling us, you know, in many ways, I think one of the things, you know, at least in pastoral care here is that 90% of what everybody's supposed to do, you know, to, to live out their call, you know, is the same for everybody. It's only 10% that's really like unique to me and unique to you. And so I think if we're actually witnessing to Christ, um, witnessing as Christ believers, then we should be on the side of thinking through how can we be light and love? And to be light and love does not mean we have to wait for um, a burning bush from God to say that we should be treating people um, in humane ways. Um, and so, um, so to me, like that's, that's sort of endemic to the walk. And then the question is, what is the specificity of that in my place and time, according to my talents, according to my opportunities, and how am I actively discerning that? Um, so God is always sovereign. God can always intervene. God can give us a miracle. Ultimately, justice will roll down, right? That means it's got to come down to us. But we can also reach up, and God has told us that we are to, to go out um, and, you know, and to offer. And, you know, if, if people reject you, wipe the dust off your feet and move to the next town. Um, but we are to, to bring the love and the light, um, seeking, um, seeking the spirit along the way as to what that should look like. How would you respond to white people who respond by saying, my grandparents weren't slave owners? Uh, well, this is one of my favorites, you know, my grandparents were slave owners. One of, the, one of my quips, if you want my flippant Angie on the street answer, it's, um, well, do you celebrate the 4th of July, you know? Because um, many of our ancestors came, you know, there are white ancestors that came during the mass immigration period, but they still claim the 4th of July and they still enjoy the fruits of whiteness. And so in the same, you know, so you can't cherry pick. I think Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about this in the case for You can't cherry pick the parts of America you like and the parts you don't. Even if your grandparents were not slaveholders, they benefit from the dividends of slavery. So let's say, for example, they came in during mass immigration in the 20th century. I even get time to talk about it a bit, but, but, not, but the Social Security Act of 1935 exclusively excluded black people because of the categories that they worked, because the categories they worked in were not covered by Social Security. So pretty much a whole generation lost out on old age pensions and um, worker protection. You look at the GI Bill, because it was funneled through racist systems, um, local systems, black people who served their country did not get the benefits, um, you know, mortgage benefits and, and job benefits and, um, and housing uh, and uh, job, job housing and, and mortgage benefits. So there are ways in which the United States has actively invested in white people. So if your grandparents were white, um, by then they were white, even if, you know, they were Irish or Italian. They benefited from this idea that only white people are fully deserving of the largest of America. And that is rooted in slavery. So the idea then is that you get, you know, you, you enter a conversation in progress. So whether you intend to bear, to, to receive the dividends of whiteness is, is really not a question. You do benefit. The question is, are you amplifying it? Are you leaning into that? Or are you distancing yourself from that and trying to create alternative systems that actually include everybody? There's really, there really is no neutral, I think, is one way of thinking about this. Either you're on the side of trying to do work that's anti-racist, or you are, by default, by doing nothing, enabling the status quo, which, as we've discussed at length, is embedded in racialized systems. It's designed, the default is designed to exclude, to um, extract, um, and to have certain people bear the burdens and few of the benefits. And that's the system we've inherited. So then, um, you know, is it fair? Sure. I mean, 
much of life is not fair, right? That's that's part of part of life generally. And I don't think that race is an area where we should um, abscond from that basic idea of what it means to be a socially responsible person just because it's uncomfortable, um, because you benefit from it whether you ask for it or not. Um, I think we I think we all love the street answer. The street answer, uh, Angie questions, not the professor. By the way, on the 4th of July, I send my friends, Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave at the 4th of July, and I say, happy Juneteenth, because according to, as Frederick Douglass said, what does the 4th of July mean to me, right? Juneteenth, for those who don't know, is um, enslaved people in Texas um, in 1865 in June, the 19th, finding out that the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued. Um, but of course, the Emancipation Proclamation only released people um, who were enslaved in territories in rebellion. So for example, Maryland, enslaved Marylanders had to stay in place. Their letter is to President Lincoln saying, Mr. President, am I free? He's like, nope, keep working, because it was only in places in rebellion, right? So this idea being that if you are the property of slaveholders, then in a time of war, any property belongs to the conqueror. So enslaved people were considered, you know, property of Scott that were taken from slaveholders. So that's why you need the 13th Amendment, because the status of black people was still in question the Emancipation Proclamation is sort of the originating idea, but it was not really solidified until you had the 13th Amendment and then the 14th you have citizenship and the 15th black men the right to vote. But anyway, the hood answer is always fun. So say happy Juneteenth and watch people react. What do you mean happy Juneteenth? Give them a little lesson. Tell them what it is. All right. A lot of people are asking about a reading list uh, to follow up with this, uh, maybe in a follow-up email. Asking about a follow-up for what? A follow-up reading list. Say that again, so you cut out. I'm sorry, a follow-up reading list. Oh, a reading list, sure, I can send you a reading list. Um, I mean, I can just, I can send you the syllabus that I use for my class, Race, Ethnicity, and Society, which gives you, um, it's saying my internet connection is unstable, so I'm not sure, maybe on my end that something's going on. Um, we can hear you. Okay, you can hear me, okay. Um, but I guess I was in your reading list. I have a whole course on race, ethnicity, and society, so I can dig into almost everything that we talked about today um, at length, and I can, you know, allow you all to maybe tell me what you're interested in, and we can, I can send you those readings, and then we can just kind of do more like a, more of a conversational style as opposed to me, um, you know, leading you through a lecture, so I could, I could, I could be easily convinced, I'd be easily convinced to do that, so I'd be happy to. Uh, maybe one or two more questions, and then we can wrap it up. Um, can we create a space to talk about this more? I guess that's for Jordan to answer. <laughs> I think you're thinking about things like that all the time, so I will defer to um, the church on how that's going to work. Yeah, I mean, there there will absolutely be more things like this with Dr. Sims, and yeah, this is too good to put the lid on it right here. Um, where do you think contemporary American churches are dropping the ball? Yeah, I mean, I think those are some of the details that probably are too much to get into, <laughs> given that we're going to be wrapping up pretty soon. But I think that could be one of the topics we delve into, which is something that I'm really interested in understanding more about myself, is the history of the role of the church in these social justice movements and the work the churches are already doing, and then thinking about, um, you know, how we may be dropping the ball on some of these social justice issues. So how do we learn from, you know, our elders, and then how do we bring forward, I think, the, the, the witness of the church at this moment. I think that's a great place for us to add value that I think really isn't there. I think a lot of the people that are in the movement now prominent in Black Lives Matter and um, and and even some of the, you know, celebrities get a lot of the attention like, you know, or 
not just celebrities, but people like Al Sharpton that, you know, give eulogy at, you know, the most recent person, unfortunately, who's been killed by our system. I think, I think what's missing is still the, is, is the church. And so I think, I think that's a, that's a place where we could definitely add some unique value that I think is not um, quite there yet, fully fleshed. Um, and I think that um, now there's a, there's a spiritual richness, I think that's missing from the movement that I think um, we can add. And I'd be happy to um, explore with others who are interested in what that might look like. Okay, maybe one more and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Okay, so people are sharing good information from about Matt Desmond, who wrote Evicted. Um, if we don't have many black leaders in our lives, who should we be following? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, there are a lot of black leaders, and I think, and this, one of the things that's happened in the last 30 or 40 years is just the, the erosion of what we call um, sort of institutional gatekeepers. So there are a lot of thought leaders out there, as I think one of the difficulties we have is the gift and the curse of more information. Because with more information, they have to sort through and find the leaders, and it takes more to break through. And then often the people that get the most attention are just the most dramatic, not necessarily the most effective, or those that have um, people's best interests at heart. Um, and so I think part of what we're learning how to do is discern, because the other, you know, the gatekeepers that we had before had their own interests. So it's not to say that they were better for us um, per se at the end, but it does mean that there was a culling, a curating that was being done for us that is not being done now. So I think that's part of the challenge we face right now is how to take all of this information and discerning and then to use it to promote um, the common good, uh, I think that we're all thinking about. So again, I think a great question to carry in for our next session. So. But maybe this is a good place to wrap up because I think all of us are <laughs> asking questions that are going to be too much for us to unpack at 9.15, but um, certainly happy to. Yeah, this has been absolutely phenomenal. One of the things that you said that really was eye-opening for me is you said our idea of freedom is cramped because we think of it in contrast to slavery, and we just don't have the imagination to really think about freedom because we're just thinking about not being enslaved. Um, and our imagination is so cramped and just what we could imagine to have and to, to hope for, to create, as we just imagine what an equitable, beautiful shalom looks like, where people have basic dignity embedded in the Imago Dei. Um, and I'm just really grateful for you breaking it down for us. Um, everybody give Dr. Sims, she can't hear you, but a virtual clap, <laughs> round of applause. And uh, we'll follow up with the email. And yes, you can do the little icons. We'll follow up with the email with some more stuff. And I will, I'm just going to pray this out really quickly. Um, Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gift uh, that Dr. Sims is to the body of Christ. So grateful for everybody that was on the call tonight and just for the hunger and the zeal and just for all that was deposited in us. Lord, we pray that this would empower us to be your people here on this earth. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.